Okay, let's get started. Uh, I welcome everybody to uh, Grand Rounds and those who watch remotely. My name is Eugene Demidenko. I work at Biomedical Data Science. I teach mathematics at the Department of Mathematics, Dartmouth College, and also at QBS. It is my pleasure to introduce Dorothy Wallace, a colleague of mine, and we know each other almost for 30 years now. So we teach together mathematics, and I'm so pleased that she came over and she will give a talk on mathematical application to tumor growth. I know your work from malaria and mathematical modeling of biological processes. So this is one of your work, very exciting, and I am uh, uh, confident that you will learn a lot from her talk. So she teaches at mathematics at Dartmouth College for many years, right, and, and, and does research. So, uh, but before we start, I need to read a legal statement. Dr. Wallace does not have any conflict of interest. Uh, she does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of product or device. And she is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Please, uh, uh, I enjoy, will enjoy your talk, and I, and I hope that you will enjoy it as well. Thank you. Uh, is this on? It is on. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming to this talk, and thank you for having me, Eugene, and. Um, Keep a note of any questions. If you have anything that must be sorted out as we go along, go ahead and ask. If you have general questions, maybe toward the end is better. Uh, Eugene will ask the hardest questions, <laughs> but that's okay. So this talk has a title with a lot of words in it. So let me just say, creating a broadly useful in silico tumor simulation through leveraging multiple data sources. So the order of events here is is I'm going to show you how the model works. There will be no equations, okay? I have pictures instead that will show you how the model works. Um, and then I will show you how we use multiple data sources to make the model work well. And then I will go through a bunch of examples of how we're applying it in different situations. Um, so. But to start with, I, I feel like, you know, when, you, when a mathematician talks to a general audience, they always have to justify their existence. Okay, so why? Why would you want mathematical models of cancer tumors? Um, so there's a bunch of uses we can put a model to. We can validate the conclusions of your experiment. So you have some experiment that you did. You have some reasons that you believe it worked. We can embody those reasons in a quantitative model and see if they give you the results that your experiment got thereby supporting your argument for what happened. We can uh, match the model to real data that you provide, which validates the model. So that's sort of a necessary first step. We can model in interventions, um, treatments, for example, and we can extend the reach of what you can do in the lab if we have a simulation version of it. And I'll definitely do an example of that in this talk. Um, we can use a model to predict how a result in one context may transfer to another. So if you understand how a treatment works, let's say in a monolayer experiment, and if you really understand how that cell line works in monolayer and spheroid, perhaps you can take the treatment and predict what it will do in the case of a spheroid, that kind of thing. So it's like a baby translational research step. You can test hypotheses. If you think you know how something works, a mathematician can put your thoughts into a quantitative model, right? Try to parameterize it with biologically reasonable numbers and then tell you to what extent your hypotheses play out as a result. Um, models can propose new hypotheses. Um, generally, when you make a model, it's to a certain end, but once you have it, you can ask it all kinds of questions. And those extra questions can make new hypotheses that might suggest research projects. And finally, it can predict consequences of experiments you have not yet done, which could uh, cause you to avoid wasting time doing experiments that are not likely to work out, 
or it could be an argument for funding. So all those things are within the purview of mathematical models if we're clever about how we construct them and use them. So that, that's my pitch to you for why you should be talking to mathematicians. Um, for me, this is the picture I always like to think of. So this is all of applied math put in two dimensions, right? So if you're not familiar with doing a lot of applied math, I will say some types of applied math are extremely theoretical. So that's the right axis. And some of them are very problem driven by very specific experiments or very specific hypotheses. Some uh, applied math uses a small amount of very expensive data. So that would be like all the problems in cancer research. All the data is expensive to get, right? But some have almost too much data and the problem is reversed. The problem is sorting through a ton of data to make sense out of it. So from my point of view, my research is attempting to move cancer models from a more theoretical situation to a more problem-driven situation that uses more data than before. So that's just my schematic for what I'm trying to do in my research here. So now, what usually happens with modelers is somebody does an experiment or collects some data, gives the data to the modeler, the modeler makes some reasonable assumptions about how things work, um, builds a model, attempts to match this data set, usually succeeds more or less to match the data set. And I want to argue that this is a huge missed opportunity, that this, that this is a, a, a weak way to use models, that usually when there's an experiment, like if you do an experiment with a cell line, there's 50 papers out there on that cell line, right? So that one experiment embodies some information, but out there, there's a lot of information about that cell line. So it's worth it to use multiple experimental types to construct a model, multiple types of data from different sorts of things. Right? And so that's what I want to talk about today. So here's a schematic for today's talk. I'm going to show you how to build a model that incorporates data from multiple experiments. That will take a few minutes. Um, then I'm going to give you some examples of how we are using that model to study various <laughs> phenomena. Then I'm going to show you how we can make that model bigger to include other features that are not yet in it and what we're busy working on now. And when I say we, you'll see a lot of names go by here. I work with a lot. And then I'll give you three examples of that. And along this way, my goal is to convince you that this little model I'm going to show you is as useful as a two-stroke gasoline engine, which is a very useful thing. Okay? So in particular, there's three kinds of tumor growth experiments that um, inform the basic model I'm going to talk about today. So this is a model of a solid tumor. Okay? This model is not for things like leukemia, right? It's for solid tumors. So we need experimental data that's done on a Petri dish, right? Monolayer. We need experimental data that's done as a spheroid in a well of some sort. And we need um, the nude mouse data, right? We need the xenograph data. We use all three of those kinds of data to make this model. The lower right-hand picture there, famous picture. That's the uh, Folkman and Hopper's paper on spheroids where they discovered that spheroids always stop growing, but they don't die. Why? Okay. That was the paper that led Folkman to say, maybe there's angiogenesis. So that's a famous picture. This is an imaging paper, and this, I forget where this one's from. Oh, maybe it's from Kim et al. Okay, so we're going to use all three kinds of experimental data. Here's what's supposed to happen with the model, because this is what happens in experiment. If, you're, if you take your model and you rig it up as a monolayer model, and I'll show you how we do that, it should grow exponentially. There should be a cell cycle in it. There should be uh, a distribution of things in the cell cycle according to what's observed in experiment. There should be a doubling time, et cetera, according to what's observed in experiment. If you take your model and you turn off vasculature, you should have a spheroid. Spheroids are complicated because 
they have three kinds of cells in them, proliferating, quiescent, and necrotic. And the proliferating ones come in a cell cycle, right? They always stop growing. When the growth stops, there's still a layer of proliferating cells on the outside, so it's still alive. It's not dead. It doesn't stop and be dead. Uh, we know that quiescent cells can return to the proliferating compartment in the event um, that nutrient is supplied. There's experiments that show that. We know that necro the necrotic part releases a substance that stops growth, okay? And we know from mathematics that the cessation of growth is not due to the limits of diffusion because people spend a lot of time trying to do models where there's diffusion limits as you come in from the outside with, uh, with nutrient and the, and the spheroid model never stopped growing. So diffusion's not enough to explain it. You need this necrotic substance or uh, a limited um, nutrient, one of the two. All that is supposed to happen in the spheroids. And then in xenografts, weirdly, um, the tumor starts growing fast, but then settles into a linear growth. You see this over and over again in data sets. So you have the same cell line, the same exact cell line. You put it in a different context, and you get different growth, right? In one, you get exponential growth. In one, it stops growing. And in one, it grows like a line. The model needs to be able to do all those things. So here's a picture of the model with no equations, all right? So uh, we have a cell cycle. If you look at what's inside the little red box, it's just the three parts of the cell cycle. If you turn off the arrows to the other boxes, it should grow exponentially. It's a linear model, very easy mathematically to analyze. However, if you turn on these other arrows and you allow um, things to become quiescent in the absence of nutrients, then inside the blue box, you have all the compartments for a spheroid. So you have the proliferating compartment, that's in the red box, quiescent, the necrotic, and A is this signal, which is your tumor necrosis factor, that has an action on the proliferating cells. Um, which causes them to apoptose. Okay, so that's the monolayer. To have a monolayer model, you need to turn off growth of vasculature. So the little red box on the right is vasculature. So you have some initial amount of nutrient, and then it might grow. If you turn off growth, you'll have a monolayer model. It should look like a monolayer, excuse me, like a spheroid. If you turn on these other compartments, R is the, the uh, VEGF signal, the signal that asks, in, asks blood vessels to grow, and you let the blood vessels grow, then you should have a model for a xenograft. There's no immune system yet in this model. So it's really just a xenograft model at this point, okay? And that's a picture of the model. So what the math looks like is for every one of those boxes, there's a differential equation, right? And each of these equations has a bunch of inputs and outputs which are described entirely by those arrows, right? Um, sometimes the input is actually passage of cells from one state to another, and sometimes the arrow is production of signal, and sometimes the arrow is growth. Okay? Um, and that's pretty much it. So we have eight ordinary differential equations, which I will suppress. They're very nonlinear. And that's the model I'm going to talk about mostly today. Um, yeah, let me just say that every time there's a rate of exchange between two of these compartments, we have to be really careful about how we write that. Some of them are, have bounded rates. Some of them are, have linear rates. Some of them, we just have to look to the literature to figure out how to do every single one of those rates, um, which is why there's no equations. Okay, so let me give you three examples of what we can do with this model. Okay, so this example is looking at what happens when you apply a cytotoxin to a cell line um, and compare what happens in monolayer versus what happens in the spheroid experiment. So this is inspired by a published uh, experimental comparison, Gina LeClement and her colleagues published this paper, and I'll show, you, I'll show you the pictures from that paper that made me want to do this project, okay? Um, 
we had to fit the model to publish data to make sure that we were correctly parameterizing some cell line. We did not use the same cell line that was in that paper because we needed to find data, so we went with something for which there was data, um, and also data for a treatment on the monolayer. So here's a research question here. Um, Clement and her colleagues discovered there was a difference in how spheroids and monolayers respond to a treatment. And they measured that difference for several cell lines and several treatments. And there was always qualitatively the same sort of thing that happened. Right? In that paper, there's a lot of talk about the cell line becoming resistant to treatment when it's in spheroid. So the question here is, is the difference in response really something different that happened to the cell line, or is it just a consequence of the anatomy of the spheroid versus the anatomy of the monolayer, the processes in the spheroid versus the processes in the monolayer, and the way we measure stuff? Okay. Um, so this is a baby translational research question. Does it? Do you expect to see what she saw if you just? Keep the null hypothesis. Nothing new is happening in the spheroid except it's a spheroid. So this is a published paper, and whenever you see names in green, those are Dr. Hungry graduates who worked on, on these projects. So. so here's our Clement's results. So uh, let me just, I know it's impossible to read these things at a distance. So what's looking, what they're looking at here is the survival after treatment. The horizontal axis is um, more and more intense treatments, higher dosage. The vertical axis is comparison to the control, no treatment. Okay. The red bars are monolayer experiments. And you can see as the treatment gets uh, more intense, stronger, right, survival drops off pretty quickly. The blue lines are the same exact treatment, the same exact concentrations, except the cells are grown as spheroids. And you can see the drop off, there's still drop off, but it's not nearly as fast as a percent of control. And she found this with three different treatments and a couple different cell lines. Um, and this is just a tiny part of that paper, but it was the part that grabbed me. This should be explainable. This should be explainable. <coughs> so here's the model again, and I, and I just want to point out how we had to parameterize it. So, this is for SKNSH, the cell line SKNSH. And um, honestly, I don't at the moment remember what the treatment was. But there was this paper by Kim that did the monolayer uh, experiment for this cell line with treatment. So we were able to match parameters for the monolayer and also monolayer with treatment. And then there's a paper by Carlson et al. where he measured the growth of lots of different kinds of spheroids <coughs> over time. So we have good control data for this particular cell line from that paper, okay? So that took, that's all we used, really. Uh, weirdly, doubling time, now, you researchers, I have to complain. So many papers have the cell cycle distribution, but no doubling time reported, and so many papers have doubling time reported, but no cell cycle distribution reported, so then we have to go sieve the literature, <coughs> right, to try and get some guess at doubling time. So there's several sources for doubling time, okay. So that's what we did. So um, just to point out that the model's working well, for the monolayer, all we did was turn off the yellow part of this. And you see exponential growth. For the spheroid, we turn the yellow part back on, and you see the growth eventually stops. Okay? For this particular study, well, for this particular study, we assumed that the nutrient was essentially unlimited, limited only by the surface area of the sphere. So we made nutrient availability proportional to surface area of the sphere. 
The only thing that stops this from growing in this model is, is the action of TNF-alpha on the proliferating cells. In later models, we had slightly different assumptions about nutrients, but that's okay. So anyway, here's what happens with this model. Um, the treatment intensity doesn't go as high in the Kim experiment as it did in the Clements experiment. This is just sort of the left-hand side of those pictures, but you can see there's a difference. So the gray bars are what the monolayer is doing under treatment. That's matched to data. The black bars are what the spheroid is doing under the same exact treatment <coughs> as a prediction. Okay. So here's what it looks like next to the inspirational study, right? So uh, the experimental results on the left, the simulation on the right. Um, this is a qualitative result because it was a different cell line and a different treatment. Okay, so it's a qualitative result. Nonetheless, it gives us some reason to cheer for the null hypothesis. It was not necessary to assume any extra resistance to treatment on the part of the cells in monolayer. They're just behaving exactly the same way they did, excuse me, in spheroid. They're behaving exactly the same way they did in monolayer. So the, the reason this happens, okay, is partly because of the way it's measured, percent of control, okay? Well, in the spheroid, there's a big necrotic core that's never getting killed off, right? So the effect size looks a lot smaller. And because of the growth properties of these things, the spheroid is going to stop growing, but the monolayer is not. So one thing you cannot tell from this data is how strong the treatment has to be in the monolayer before the cell line is dying out. It's just percent of control. The control is growing exponentially. 80% of control might be growing exponentially. Who knows? 20% of control might be growing exponentially, right? And in the steroid, what happens as you add more treatment is that the equilibrium size of the steroid decreases until some magical moment when it goes to zero. So for the mathematician in my audience, who's a mathematician, you mathematicians, we did do you know, a bifurcation analysis to find out what the comparison was between when you actually kill this and when you don't. Um, but anyway, the model behaves very much like the data. Yeah. So the left side is measuring cell replication or proliferation. The left side is, no, the left side is just me measuring the amount at fixed time, endpoint time. The, the blue and the purple? The blue is steroids. Right, but they're measuring triviate pyrimidine uptake, which is only taken up by replicating cells. Right, the live ones, the ones that are left alive. They're just trying to get a sense of... Well, they're not only alive, but they're also dividing. Yes. Whereas a... Um, quiescent cell is still alive, and a necrotic cell is dead, but they still contribute to the mass of the spheroid. That's or, right. Or the size of the spheroid. That's right. That's why a lot, of, a lot of the discrepancy has to do with just how we're measuring and what we're measuring. And it doesn't have to do with any resistance. So the gray and black bars are size of the spheroids? At, at time, final time. Okay. And size of the monolayer at final time. And by the way, in this experiment, the final times are different for spheroid versus monolayer. Monolayer is just going faster, right? Okay, so that's example number one. Here's example number two, okay? Suppose we have an exper a xenograft experiment and we have, we have applied some sort of treatment. In this case, it was a VEGF block, okay? Suppose we've done this. Wouldn't it be nice to know, wouldn't it be nice to be able to leverage that experiment to say, what if I had given the treatment at half strength twice as often? Or what if I had doubled the, 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 the quantity of the treatment? What if I had done this or that? So that's an expensive thing to do with mice, but it's a really cheap thing to do on a computer, okay? So, um, so this study is about a VEGF blocker on a xenograft model of IMR32. Um, so it required monolayer data from two studies, 
spheroid data from a third study, xenograph data from two more studies because when a spheroid stops growing, it's often much, much smaller than the where the xenograph starts. So an extra study was glued in there to figure out what the sizing should look like in between. Um, a VEGF production rate that came from another study. And then to apply the treatment, we needed to know the pharmacokinetics of this and the pharmacodynamics. Both of these are described in the literature. So we appended that to the model to do the treatments, okay? Having done all that, which was very much the work of Ishwan He. Um, the first question is, can we even do it? Will it look like the data for the control and the experiment in the xenograph? And then question one is, if you change the timing and the strength of dosage beyond what was done in the experiment, what does the model say will happen? And then finally, having built this model, we can ask other questions. So we can ask about relationships, for example, between VEGF production, vasculature, final tumor size. We can look for, we can look across many runs of the simulation to see if we see useful relationships. Here's the model, same model, parameterized with a selection of studies here. Plus we needed to throw in the pharmacokinetics of this treatment also parameterized from several studies, woo it all, okay? And we're good to go. So I'm not gonna show you the pictures where we test to make sure the monolayer behaves correctly and we test to make sure the spheroid behaves correctly. Those were done, so that's important. That's how you know your model is working right. And then we go to the xenograph. Okay, now the red dots are a collection of data points from these various studies. So we had two xenograph studies that we looked at. Collection of data points from those, that's the control. And then the treated one is the blue diamonds, that's from the study. Um, the black line is what the model produces for control, and the green line is what the model produces for treatment. It's a really good map. Um, in the xenograft, things eventually sort themselves out so you get a straight line, linear growth, right? So, yeah. oh, so the green line is not the model. The black dotted line is the model. The green line is just a regression line, the data. So then we can play with timing and dosage. So the two numbers with stars, um, the number with one star, that's the control run. No medicine, okay, um, from the with, that's the one we have data for. And then the light green one there with two stars, that's the treatment for the run we have data for. All the rest is constructed by mom. So the numbers tell you final tumor size at the end of the run. The shading tells you the growth rate. So it tells you the slope of that line, that green line, right? So that tells you the growth rate of the tumor. And so you get this picture and you can see that, you can see that these four uh, values are pretty reasonably close in size and the four growth rates are pretty close in size but they represent different ways of giving the medicine, right, giving the treatment. And so these two are kind of close. These three are actually kind of close. They represent different ways of giving the treatment. And then these are kind of close and they represent different ways of giving the treatment. So you might ask, um, you might ask if there's any like obvious relationships that would tell us which category you're gonna be in so we have this little graph that comes out of our study. So if we just look at the amount given per week and we forget about how often it's given and what collection of subdoses it's given, um, we can plot this data and we see that the amount given for, week, for a week, um, you can split it up three different ways, but the answer is pretty close together. The amount given, here's three different ways, pretty close together. Here's two different ways. 
And you can fit a line to this, which tells you a lot of things. I mean, it tells you that your response really only depends on the amount given per week um, and not on the actual dosage regime, which was not a surprise because this particular medicine, its pharmacokinetics are really slow. It persists a long time in the body. So it doesn't matter too much. It also tells you that the low doses have a bigger impact than higher doses. So to get from this response to this response, or this response to this response, requires only a small increase, but to get from this, respo this response to this response requires a really large one. So you get a diminishing return effect there also. So we got all of that out of this little model. And then here's the hy hypothesis generation. Um, what's the relationship between the VEGF production, how much is in the system, vasculature, and final tumor size? And lo and behold, out of this huge nonlinear model, you get a very linear relationship. So if the VEGF is, is, is higher, you get more vasculature and a bigger tumor, and weirdly, it's unaligned. So this may not surprise you, but if you're a mathematician who works with horrible nonlinear models all the time, when something turns out to fit a line, it's astonishing and wonderful. So that's a very nice, very nice uh, picture that we got there. And for the mathematicians in the audience, you can prove a theorem about this model. And the theorem says, as long as vasculature is allowed to grow, there is no equilibrium. It will never level off. So it always will continue to grow in that linear. Okay, <coughs> here's the third example. Predicting the response of a cell line to radiation when the cells, when, if you block a piece of the cell cycle. So there's a lot of experiments coming up now out there where People give radiation, irradiate a cell line, but they block, before they irradiate, they block the transition from one phase to another because one phase is maybe a little more susceptible than the other one, than another one is. So there's a bunch of these experiments out here now that um, we're looking at to see if this model can explain them. Okay. So the first question is, will the model reproduce the results? And the second is, does the model explain why you might see a different response between monolayer spheroid and xenograft. And does the model explain, does the model give you enough quantitative information to tell you whether it's worth it to block the cell cycle transition before doing radiation? How big of an effect is that? So this is not published yet, and it's still in progress. It's the same old model, right, except we, uh, we might allow a blocking of a transition in the cell cycle, and we apply radiation, and we have to get some data that tells us what the effect of radiation is for a certain number of grays on these different types of cells. Okay, so we're in the process of doing that now. That's an ongoing project. So this little model has a lot of possibilities. Um, just with this, you can ask these questions. What happens when you block the cell cycle? What happens if you have a cytotoxin where the death rate depends on the cell cycle? What happens if you have some treatment that shocks these cells out of quiescence? What happens if you use TNF-alpha as a therapy? What happens when you use VEGF blockers? All those things are already in this model. It's really easy to play with them and say, what happens if, this, if I change this or that or the other thing? It has a lot of potential. And then here's some research questions that I don't know the answers to yet or, you know, that need to be uh, better defined and uh, some nuance explored. But a lot of these treatments have multiple effects. So far, we've looked at treatments with a single effect. Either they kill a cell or they block VEGF or whatever. But a lot of treatments seem to have multiple effects. Like if you can kill proliferating cells, perhaps you're slowing down the rate at which vasculature can grow. That, that's not in here yet. I haven't tried that yet. Um, so there's side effects that we haven't put in, or extra effects. One treatment, multiple effects. Another research question, what happens when you combine treatments, right? What happens when you combine treatments? So this is the thing where mathematics holds the most promise. Suppose you're going to give a VEGF blocker and slow down vasculature growth. Suppose you're going to give a cytotoxin in order to kill cells. Well, how's the cytotoxin going to get there, right? It needs the vasculature to get there. 
So there's probably some optimal order of doing things, right? An optimal order of doing things that we don't really quite know what it is yet. And this is where math has some promise, right? Because you can, once you have a model you believe, you can try lots of orders, right? And see what looks most likely. And then the final research question is near and dear to my heart, and um, if any of you have any ideas where to begin with this, I want to know what can this model do? What sort of tumor morphologies can be produced by this model? Um, and under what circumstances, right? There's a lot of parameters in a model this big. You can change around a lot. We know some tumors have a big necrotic core and others don't have hardly any, right? We know some have a lot of vasculature. Some don't have any very much. Um, I need an omnibus of tumor morphologies, and I've yet to find this omnibus out in the literature. If you know where that is, I'd love to know. But that's more of a mathematical question. What can I build with this model? All right, so a two-cycle engine is a very small engine that propels a lot of different things we use all the time. It's in your chainsaw, it might be in your motorcycle, it's in some car you can't buy in this country, thank heavens. Um, airplane Morgan, my son's in the audience, but airplane, there's an airplane that runs on a two-cycle engine, and our weed whacker runs on a two-cycle engine, and a jet ski. It's just always the same little engine, but it can do a lot of different things. So my goal in my research here is to build a little engine, right, that can do many different things so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we want to solve a problem. So um, where am I in this case? So I showed you some examples of how we use the model as I described it. But now I want to show you how to extend the model to include other features which need to be included to look at certain problems. Okay, So I want to talk about three examples that are in progress here. One is a situation where you have two cell lines in competition. One is a situation that, that requires um, looking at the immune system and asking how does that work. And one is uh, looking at a hypothesis that, uh, that um, is in the literature in several places about how acid, the production of acid, might mediate uh, transition of cells to uh, malignant state. So all of those things require making the model bigger. So now we're going to make the model bigger. So missing thus far is multiple cell lines. Missing is the immune system. And missing is a description of what happens when cells produce acid. Okay? So all the rest is a work in progress. So competition between cell lines, what happened? Okay, so there were uh, some friends of mine at Moffitt did this experiment where they put two cell lines together in competition. And they got beautiful results that, would, that, were, that surprised them. Surprised them. They weren't expecting what they saw. Why weren't they expecting what they saw? Well, one of them's a pretty good mathematician. And he knows how to model competition. There's classic ways to do it. And they're in every single mathematical biology textbook on this planet, <laughs> right? So he implemented them and they didn't work. They did not give the answer that the data gave, that the experiment gave. And I happened to be there. They showed me their results and they said, can you explain to me why this is happening? And I said, well, I can try. Okay. So, um, so we're on the road to success. I can't show you all the data because it's not published and it's not mine and all that stuff. But I will, I'll give you the schematic overview of what we did. Here's our basic model. I'm going to summarize it as a two-cycle engine. I put two of them in competition. It looks like that. Okay? So the, uh, there's two of these models side by side. They're both drawing from the same nutrient supply, <coughs> which is uh, fixed input. Actually, depending on circumstances, it might be sporadic input, you know, how the experiment was done. Or it could be fixed input. So both of them are drawing from this one source of input. There's no actual vasculature there growing, it's just fixed input, okay? So, okay, there's a schematic overview of what we did. <laughs> well, I mean, I can't show you the data just yet. I can tell you it's working, working quite well. Why? Because we have a lot of information available in these models. Each cell line differs in many ways. Different, different rate of growth, different rate of uptake of the nutrients, right? And, uh, and is that all? No. Different tolerance for hypoxia. Okay. So you have to build all that stuff in, but you get 
you discover that their two cell lines, when modeled this way, do behave like their experiment. So that's one thing. Another example. What example am I on? Example five, the immune system. So this is based on a question that was that somebody asked me, Heiko Enderling at Moffitt Cancer Research Center. Um, his general question was, how much of the immune system do you have to take into account in a model in, in, order, to, in order to ask certain questions? Can you leave it out and get the same answer? This is, this is like the most mathy question ever. How simple can I make this model and still get the correct answer, right? That was sort of his, his way of looking at it. But, but he was particularly interested in uh, the immune response to radiation debris, okay? And, and of course, you, if you had an immune system built in, you could also ask immunotherapy questions. So the question was, do you need it? But then the next question is, how would you model it? Okay. So uh, this is sort of preliminary work. And the first round of modeling was done by Maya Srinivasan. She's an alum now. She was an undergraduate when she did it. She's at Mount Sinai Medical School. Okay. So this is uh, a simplified picture of what we did here. Um, same old model, add on an immune system. Now, everybody knows the immune system is horribly complicated. And not only is it horribly complicated, it's hard to measure all the parts of it. So this is a simplified immune system consisting of two types of cells. Effector cells, cells that can go in and kill a cancer cell, and regulatory cells, cells that would regulate the immune response if it gets out of hand. Uh, that's ENF. D is damaged cells that have been damaged by radiation that might provide a signal that the immune system could respond to. So we have this thing. And qualitatively, it works pretty well. Quantitatively, we're stuck because there's a few rate constants that we can't figure out what they should be from the literature. We haven't seen good papers that tell us what those rate constants are. In particular, on this rate, when a cancer cell when, when a, an immune cell, when the immune system goes to kill cancer cells, how fast can it do it? You know, how effective is that? We don't have a good number for that. So we're stalled right now until we find parameters that allow us to do something that is biologically reasonable. And now um, the next slide is for Eugene, um, who thinks I have no equipment. Okay, there are no equations, there are no equal signs here. But there are a whole lot of transfer functions that have to be sorted out. And I put this up not, not to terrify anybody, but just to say I'm suppressing all this stuff, but all of this stuff has to be worked out, which is why I can keep a thousand undergraduates busy. Okay. And the final example I want to talk about here is acidosis. So this is joint work with uh, Naomi and, and Frederica, both undergraduates. Frederica is, is, has carried uh, the bulk of it now. Um, and it's based on a hypothesis by a research group at Moffitt, Bob Gattenby and Bob Gillies and all the people who work with them. And their hypothesis is, is in the literature and it's basically the idea that hypoxic cells will become glycolytic. They will produce acid and the acid itself will promote acid resistance and malignancy. That's their hypothesis. That's a hypothesis that could be built into this model if you include all these categories that aren't here yet, right? We have hypoxic, we don't have glycolytic yet, we don't have the acid itself, we don't have acid resistant cells, and we don't have malignant cells in the model yet. Well, I should say, until Frederica got her hands on it. Um, okay, so here's the puzzle. Where's the two-cycle engine in this picture? The little model is in here. It's, it's organized a little bit differently, but it's there, okay? The original little model had vasculature, had proliferating cells, had these two signals, had necrotic cells, and had quiescent cells. So this bit here is the original model. It's, in, it's boxed in black, okay? And then if you look at the big fat arrows, that's the hypothesis that's put forward by this research group um, headed by Gattenby, okay? that these proliferating cells will become hypoxic. They will produce acid, the green stuff over here. 
because of the, well, they'll become glycolytic, then they'll produce acid. The acid itself will mediate this transition to acid resistance and also this transition to malignant. That's their hypothesis. Well, okay, we built the model that does that, but there's also an experiment. They all, there's also an experiment that came out of that group where they used tramp mice, um, mice that spontaneously develop prostate cancer. And uh, as the prostate cancer developed at various points, they would add a buffer to the mice, mouse's diet to reduce the pH of the entire mouse, basically. Um, oh, excuse me, increase the pH of the entire mouse to normal, right? So that was their experiment. And so they have outcomes, and they shared, well, their data is published, but then they also shared numbers with us so that we could see if, by making this work, we could get the same results as they got in that little experiment. Um, short answer. Yes, works, works great, works great. The only weird thing what we had to do, how am I doing? The only weird thing we had to do is because tramp mice develop cancer so fast, we had to ignore like everything the literature says about mutation rates or changes that what might happen in humans and speed things up, right? But once we sped things up so that the control looked like the tramp mouse, then yes, the treatment looked like the treatment. So that's the last example I'm going to give you um, for how we can use this little two-cycle engine. So I think I've described the model for you. I've shown you three examples of how the model for this little engine can handle certain kinds of research questions. Then I showed you how we might extend the model in various ways, right? And I showed you three examples of how we're in the middle of doing that to try and answer certain questions. So all I have left to do in this talk is convince you that this model is as useful as a two-cycle engine. There's a two-cycle engine. See all the things it can run. Here's the model. See all the things it can do. So um, it can look at all these phenomena, alone or in combination. You can extend it to include multiple cell types, acidosis, immune system interactions, stuff I haven't thought about yet, stuff that hasn't occurred to me, stuff you are probably thinking about. So I hope this will be useful to you. And uh, so I was down at Moffitt Cancer Research Center winter of 2018. We now have an off-campus program there, so I get to go like every couple of years. Um, and I, I was in... Gatenby Research Group's, Gatenby's office with all of his research people in the office. And I said, show me the big picture. I want to draw this model as it fits into the big picture of all the stuff you guys think about. Here's the picture that got drawn on the blackboard that day. Um, so here's the little model. Here's the immune system. Here's multiple copies of this model if you have multiple cell types. Here's a bunch of shared nutrients that might occur. Um, right now, the model just says nutrient. It doesn't specify what nutrient. You know, it just assumes you're talking about whatever nutrient is the limiting factor, right? Uh, so shared nutrients, shared byproducts, like the acid might be shared byproducts. So one of these cell types might be the acidic, the, the acid-resistant or malignant cell type, or it might be a totally different genetic thing like in the first experiment. So this is the, the giant picture into which my little picture, the little thing I work on, I hope will fit in the long run. Um, because a good two-cycle engine should run a lot of machines. A lot of machines. So the takeaway I hope you have today is that um, using data from multiple sources gives you a better model. Insisting that your model fit multiple contexts simultaneously or with, you know, obvious adjustments makes a better model. Models can do, can do a lot of things. I think in the examples we saw, it can validate the conclusions of an experiment, extend the reach of your experimental predictions, help you figure out how 
something will translate from one type of experiment to another, improve your theory, and you know maybe suggest extra research, new, new research, or support an argument for funding. A good complex model should be able to explain multiple experiments, move from one context to another, and be extended easily to incorporate more phenomena as needed. And that's why I'm allergic to the logistic equation. That's why I'm allergic to it. <laughs> okay. <coughs> Just because you can match a data set doesn't mean you have a good model. It has to be conceptually strong and be able to do a lot of So I want to thank you again for coming. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. If you have something you want modeled, some, you know, data set that you want modeled or something, please, you know, get in touch. My door is open. I'm easy to find um, across town in the math department, but I have a car, you know. <laughs> Come over. Yeah. Um, so I'm so grateful, Eugene, that you invited me here. It's my chance to get my foot in the door and just offer, you know, that maybe this could be of use to you. <clears throat> Thank you. Any questions? <clears throat> you have to ask a question or Eugene will ask a question. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for your talk, Dorothy. Uh, what were your thoughts about including or not including thermal pressure, say, in the xenograph model? Uh, okay, so um, I have not done that. It has not been needed. The Studies I've looked at, I don't think the tumors got big enough that that would be the overriding factor, but it's a good question. Um, actual spatial constraints and pressure are not in this model yet. It would be a nice thing to include. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Going back to the spheroid model. Is that that's better the number of cells you have the, in the asteroid? You put three case, five case, of the case, but it doesn't matter to see the chemo resistance that you were showing in the. In the oh, the size. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So people do people do steroid models with at, with agent based agent based steroid models where every agent is an individual cell. Computationally, it's difficult to make anything very large that way. But differential equations, the unit of quantity is set by you. So we work on all the units that, uh, for tumor sizes have been um, micrometers times 10 to the 6. That's been our unit of size for all of these studies. Did that answer your question or not? Not completely, because I, just, I mean... We see this uh, the effect on the steroids you put, for example, 3K, 3,000 versus 5,000 versus 10,000. 10, we see the differential is uh, effect of the same drug, the same condition. Uh -huh. Well, that the, would be fun to model. Yeah, because that's one of the points. Yeah. Uh, we, were, we were just estimating experimentally yeah. by error and trying the number of cells we did. Yeah. Because, for example, you can put 5% matrigen, it's different from the 1%, 3%. So, so this model might be able to handle that question. It's certainly the case that if you grow a spheroid using this model, its anatomy changes as it grows, right? So when it's small, it's all proliferating. As it gets larger, a quiescent body appears. As it gets larger, a necrotic core appears. And when it gets really large, the necrotic core is a lot of it. So this does change anatomy as it grows, so maybe it would work to, to look at, yeah. at some data of that sort. Yeah. Call me. Uh -huh. sure. That'd be fun. I, I would. <laughs> uh, yes. Just one really stupid question. Uh -huh. So I was twin that when doing models, we should use uh, as few parameters as possible and use and do a, a chi-square test, use the outcomes reason and uh, determine like what parameters are the most important, and then try to use as the uh, smallest number of parameters to explain the uh, data that we observe. Is that something that 
Okay, so I have this argument with the guys at Moffitt all the time. They want to do the simplest possible model that does the job and nothing more complicated than that. And when I show this, they say, well, you have so many parameters. How do you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, the answer is go to the literature. So don't be a lazy mathematician. Don't, don't be a lazy mathematician. The world is full of lazy mathematicians who won't go read all the literature. There's a world of information out there that we could use to help us get uh, like a biologically reasonable range for some of these things. So my strategy is make the model that reflects what the biologists believe. Okay? Then go to the literature and get as many of those parameters as you can from studies that have already been done. You're still stuck with a few that you don't know, and you may have to match a data set for those last few, but you're way ahead, right? Um, also, the other thing, since you're asking me about math questions, I'll say, make sure your model behaves qualitatively correctly before you start matching the data. There are models out there that match data sets perfectly, and if you extrapolate them, you discover the tumor dies on its own. All right, so you wouldn't want to use, I mean, so you matched a data set, great. I have a lot of things that are nasty to say about matching data sets, right? When in doubt, use a crayon. Crayons always work, don't need a model. If I may, uh, as a statistician, uh, you have to distinguish two tasks, feeding uh, the data and understanding how it works. So uh, Dorothy is talking about what is under the hood of two-cycle engine. Instead of uh, fitting a line and, and say that I can interpolate, basically, not extrapolate tumor growth, something like this. So there is a two different tasks you have to understand. If, so that said, the strategy you're describing works a lot of the time. Works a lot of it. Yeah. So right along those lines, you said you're going out and you're getting good papers. How do you know they're good papers, and how do you oh. know you're not adding your own bias of what you're looking for into your models? Well, usually when I'm saying good papers, I'm saying a paper that has enough detail in it that I can figure out what the person did, because I'm not a medical researcher. So there has to be enough detail that I understand what it was they were measuring and what it was they did. It has to have enough data in it in a sort of a numbery format, but <laughs> right? And there's certain kinds of data that are more useful to me than others. So for parametrizing a spheroid, if I just have growth of the size of the spheroid, this is a little bit problematic. It's not quite enough. But if someone will tell me at the end of the run how, what fraction of it was necrotic, whew, now that's hard to match. And I know when I've matched it, probably it's close to right. If they tell me how much is quiescent and how much is necrotic, I should write them a thank you letter. Right? So, so when I say good studies, I mean studies that have measured the thing that I'm trying to use. You know, good from my point of view. Other questions? Yes. Yeah, the last one. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, I just wanted to understand from a pragmatic standpoint how quickly you can move stuff. For instance, uh, you added an intervention and added a two-compartment PK along with an intervention. For instance, if you go for an intratumoral drug versus something that's infused classically, how quickly can you model that when that context changes? So I don't have the luxury of working directly with experimentalists. I have to use with the literature. So if I'm going to model pharmacokinetics, I have to go find somebody who figured that out. Right? So in the case where there's a pharmacokinetic thing in here, there was a paper where somebody did a rather thorough study of that drug to work out the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics. Now, for the pharmacodynamics, they used a model that was different from ours. So we took the form of the functional response and rematched it using this model because that had to be done. But um, how quickly is it? I would, I would never, I, would, I can't make promises. <laughs> you know, it just depends on what's already been done. Is that an answer or a non-answer? <laughs> I'll tell you that my students want to make a t-shirt that says, I hate spheroids. Because the thing that takes the longest is parameterizing the spheroid model. Once you've got that, adding in vasculature is not that hard. It's just a few parameters and, you know, 
human cells grow at the rate they grow, it's not like you have to rematch that. So that, that one's actually, that jump is easier than figuring out what's going on with the spheroid. Um, and so my students all, all my little undergraduates need t-shirts that say, I hate spheroids. I hate them. But they all managed to do it in the end. I don't know how long it took them. <laughs> Thanks so much. If you have other questions, I'll hang around for a while.